My name is Brad Lagos. I serve as the executive pastor here at Bethel Church, and uh, that means that I kind of am all over the place, kind of get to all the different campuses. My role primarily is to just kind of encourage and lead the staff for the most part, and so I just kind of describe myself. I'm that, try to just be that oil to keep all the gears and cogs kind of moving uh, throughout the the broad, uh, broad thing we are here at Bethel Church, and I'm just delighted, really, to work alongside Mark Colton, who's been here now a year and a half or so. He's getting a little family time away this week, uh, but he's just been a real blessing on this campus to me personally. Tremendous to see uh, how he's just kind of stepped up and kind of found his rhythm here. And uh, great staff team here as well. I always enjoy working with Bill Hilgons and Lori Molama and Ellen Cruza and the rest of the gang who are here, you all are really blessed here at Cedar Lake uh, with the community that you have. I found out as well just this week that Brent Mulma, Lori Mulma's husband, uh, just landed a job locally. Some of you have been aware, you've been praying for them for a long time. So that means we get to keep uh, Brent around, but more importantly, we get to keep Lori around because uh, she has just been a tremendous uh, director of women's ministry for us here, and it's been my privilege to serve alongside her for six years, and just really thankful that uh, they're going to be staying put, and that's a blessing to, to all of us. I, I'm, I, I'm confident of that. Well, I was talking with Mark about, you know, what, do, uh, what should I preach on while I'm here, and uh, we kind of talked about a few options, and there's one sermon I gave at Crown Point about a year plus ago that he thought would be particularly helpful, so hopefully it's not a repeat, hopefully it didn't happen to be at, at Crown Point that one fateful day uh, when I preached this particular message, if so, hopefully it'll encourage you again. Uh, but I will, I will warn you, it's a little bit more of kind of a heady message, there's a lot of uh, kind of robust theology in this sermon, so I'm going to need you to kind of shift it into gear because we're going we're gonna to go pretty hard, at least for the first half. Uh, of this sermon. And what I'd like to do this morning is address a significant theological question today. It's a question that most people, probably all of us have at some point wondered about. It's a question that is actually often a stumbling block to people believing in God in the first place, a question that causes many people to doubt the reality of God's existence, many people to perhaps become atheists or agnostics themselves. And here's the question. The question is, why can't I visibly see God? If God, I mean, if God is real, why doesn't he just plainly and visibly show himself? If God really exists, you know, why is he not just visibly on display for the entire world to undeniably see? I mean, it just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if I, if I were God, um, I'd reveal myself, I would think, to the entire world. By simply appearing in the sky or having my voice boom out over the world, I'd show up to direct human history away from wickedness. I'd show up to reward those who were righteous. I mean, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Yet God is not doing this. We can't just look up in the sky and see God clearly shining up there. We don't hear his audible voice speaking out over the entire world. We don't witness generally amazing supernatural miracles that we just all attribute to God, like the parting of the Red Sea, or if there's an airplane that's just like all of a sudden losing altitude and appearing to crash, we don't just all of a sudden see this hand appear that kind of grabs hold of it and sets it gently to the ground. I mean, why doesn't God reveal himself in this way? Why doesn't he just visibly show himself and make himself obvious? Theologians call this the invisibility of God, that God is real and that he is present, but he is presently invisible to our eyes. He is hidden. He is unseen. And we know that God must be hidden and and invisible by his own choice. 
I mean, clearly God could plainly reveal himself to us if he wanted to, but he chooses not to. Why? Well, answering this question, I think we first need to realize that throughout redemptive history, God has at times chosen to very clearly and visibly reveal himself in various ways. He's been much more visible in the past. Just go all the way back to Adam and Eve. He was undoubtedly clear to them there in the garden. They even had back-and-forth conversations with God. Or to Abraham and Jacob, God appeared to both of these men in very visible, audible ways. Or to Moses, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And at the top of Mount Sinai, later in the book of Exodus, we see this, that the Exodus 33, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Or to the nation of Israel. Think of all the ways that God has showed himself to the nation of Israel. Again, as a parting of the Red Sea, the plagues he brought down upon Egypt, where we read in Exodus 13. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. It's an obvious manifestation of God. Or to the leaders of Israel. God has shown himself plainly to the leaders of Israel throughout um, redemptive history. Here's an example, Exodus 24. Then, the, then Moses and Aram, Nahab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Or to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had multiple visions of God. In Isaiah 6.1 he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seeing, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Very clearly, visibly revealed to Isaiah there. Of course, God himself was perhaps most fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, He, meaning Jesus here, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus was the perfect manifestation of God who walked and talked and appeared amongst His people. He, he ate with them, He grieved with them, He suffered with them, felt pain with them. God in the flesh visibly apparent and clear for all to see. And so there are some ways that God has very visibly and plainly revealed himself to mankind. And God is not finished visibly and plainly revealing himself in this way. Jesus will be undeniably visible in the future. He is the most visible representation of God that we will someday see. Revelation 22 you know, foretells this when it says, No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. So there will be a time when the whole world will see God and will see Christ in unparalleled clarity. He will be undeniable, visibly seen, audibly heard by everybody. That day is coming when every knee and every, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord because the full revelation of God will be undeniable. As undeniable as the sun in the sky, or the sound of booming thunder in a thunderstorm. But at this point, at this point, right now, God is hidden. Why? I mean, wouldn't it greatly strengthen your faith if you could just look up and see Him? Imagine if Jesus just kind of orbited through the sky like the sun. And we could just look up there and see him whenever we wanted. I, if that were the case, I think we would design our worship auditoriums with massive skylights. And we just kind of time our worship service and we just know, okay, here's when he's going to be just kind of right up there. And, and we gather, we look up, and there's Jesus. We can see him visibly, plainly, and we just time our worship to just align with that. Wouldn't that be wonderful? 
Wouldn't that make our faith so much stronger, so much confident, so much easier? But God is presently unseen. And that seems to put our faith at a disadvantage. It might cause us to doubt. And it makes us wonder, you know, wouldn't God want his people to have the strongest faith possible? Why is God presently visually unseen? I have one big overarching answer to this question, followed by two more specific answers. So one big kind of summary truth, and then two more truths that flow from this one that will hopefully to a large degree answer the question, this question for us today. So first, the first, so, so the first big overarching answer is this, to this question, why is God visually unseen? And we need to remember that whenever we answer, ask questions that try to discern what is the ultimate motivator, what is the ultimate value behind God does, so God, why God is doing something. Whenever we say, why does God do does blank? So why, why did God create mankind? Why does God permit there to be evil and suffering? Why does God give us his word? Why does he expect obedience? Why is he presently visually unseen? All of these why questions as to God's motivation, they all ultimately have the same answer. They all ultimately have one primary answer, and that is that God does everything for the sake of his own glory. God's glory is the ultimate motivator behind all that he does. Or to say it another way, God's supreme concern is his own glory. We see this taught in many passages throughout the Bible. One example I'll take you to Ezekiel 36. The prophet records, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. It's not for your sake, it is for my sake. So here's a, here's a context for that, this verse. God is promising to the nation of Israel restoration. They are currently in exile. They're suffering. They're far from him. And so God describes in Ezekiel that he, how, is he going to, how he's going to restore the nation of Israel into a great nation and also a people unto himself. And so here in verse 22, God is saying this incredible restorative work I'm going to do, Israel, I'm doing it first and foremost for myself. I'm doing ultimately for my glory and for my fame. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. It is for my sake. It is for the sake of my holy name, for the sake of my reputation among the nations. It is for my own sake that I do this, says the Lord. It's not for your sake, O Israel. It's not for your prosperity or your comfort that I'm about to act. It is not for your own happiness that I will restore you. I am ultimately doing this for my sake, not for yours. So that we need to remember whenever we ask, why would God do blank? God always acts, first and foremost, for his own glory. God's supreme concern is for his own glory. He restores a wayward people, not for for their sake, ultimately, but for the sake of his own glory. Consider this other example in Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I might not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God always acts first and foremost for his own glory. Now, sometimes it's not popular to have a view like this today. Society commonly thinks, churches sometimes commonly think, that God is nothing more than a big fuzzball of love. 
And that God blesses us, first and foremost, for our own benefit. That he helps us because he loves us. And that this love compels him to want to bless us. And it is certainly true, undeniably true, that love is a motivator behind God's blessings. It is absolutely a motivation. But love is not the only motivation. His glory is also a motivation. And it is the ultimate motivation. So passages like these clearly teach that God is motivated not not only by love, but also and primarily by a zealous concern for his glory. So God must, and this must be true, God must be supremely devoted to his own glory and fame. He must be. Because he's the greatest thing. If he were more devoted to us than to himself, he would be putting us on a pedestal above himself, which would essentially make us to God idols, which then is the definition of hypocrisy. God has said, put nothing else before me, and he puts us before himself, he would be guilty of hypocrisy. And so he must be devoted to his own reputation, honor, and acknowledgement above all else. It is simply just and right that he do so. So he is devoted to this greatest thing, which is himself. Now, he does love us, absolutely loves us, with a love that is far greater than any love we could possibly have. But he also loves himself even more, and it would be unjust for God to do otherwise. God must most love the most lovable thing in the universe. And is there anything more lovable than God? Are you or I more lovable than God? Of course not. And so he loves most the most lovable thing. And so he loves himself first and foremost, while also having an unending fountain of love for mankind as well. So God always acts first and foremost for his own glory. And so when we ask, why is God presently visibly unseen? We must reason, therefore, that it is somehow, for some reason, advantageous to God's glory that he be unseen for this season of time. Somehow, God knows that it will serve his glory, that it will benefit his glory for this period of redemptive history if he is not visually seen. It serves his glory right now to be hidden. Now, that's the big overarching answer to this question. But let me get more specific. And aside, aside from the fact that he's doing all of this for his glory, why is God visibly unseen in today's world? Why, why does he visibly hide himself from the world? Well, here I've got a couple more answers to this question. The first is this. God wants his people to have a greater faith. He wants his people to have a greater faith. Now, can we all agree that it takes... Uh, more faith to believe in something that is unseen than to believe in something that is obvious to everybody? I mean, that's the basic definition of faith, isn't it? To believe in something that is not fully proven or not obvious to everybody. So it doesn't, it doesn't take any faith to believe that the grass is green. It doesn't take any faith to believe that a year and a half, two years ago, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Right? These facts are undeniable to everybody, right? But it certainly did take faith to believe that the Cubs would win the World Series someday, especially after 100-plus years of failure, right? So before they were revealed in 2006 as world champions, faith was required to believe that the Cubs would become such. But now that they've been revealed as such, faith is no longer required. It's just a basic fact. So faith is, by definition, belief in something that is unseen or not yet proven. So here's how the Bible defines faith. Hebrews 1, uh, 11, 
chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is believing in something that we cannot see or believing in something that is not obvious to everybody. Or another definition, 2 Corinthians 4. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are not seen, that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here Paul now is describing how a believer's identity is in part defined by a personal confidence in things that are unseen, things that are invisible, things that are not described in the nightly news, things that you can't prove through a textbook. God clearly, clearly wants us to have this kind of faith in him. He wants us to believe in him while he is unseen. And why is that? Well, it's because belief in unseen things, unproven things, is a more significant and meaningful faith. To consider Romans chapter 8. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes it for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so this passage here is extolling the greatness and the goodness of faith. There is a virtue in choosing to believe in something that is not yet seen or obvious to everybody. There's a glory in this. And there is a certain victory that comes from it as well. So that when you believe that the Chicago Cubs would win the World Series, there was, at least in the opinion of some, a certain virtue to that. And then when the Cubs were revealed to be winners, an explosion of joy and praise came from those who faithfully believed that. I was right. I knew it. Finally, the thing that I hoped would happen is finally here. Or another example, I have great confidence in my wife to do some wonderful, great things. We have three young kids, and once in a while we take a little family trip. We've done a few the past couple of years to the East Coast or to Disney World, and as we've taken these big trips, I've had great faith in my wife who's done so much of the planning and just the packing and getting, our, getting everything we need to care for our kids on these trips. And I, I knew she could handle it, even, even before it was proven that she did. I had confidence in that. Went off on these trips, and you know what? She... It was proved to me she nailed it. She prepared for our trip so very well. All the details were all taken care of. And, and on the trip, then I celebrated it, and I still do. It's to her glory that she was able to line all those things up, and, and I had faith that she would. And then as it was shown that she had, it was to her glory and praise of what she had accomplished. And this is how God then is glorified, by requiring a certain faith from his people. God relishes in faith that his people express in him. He delights in the confidence that believers show in him, even though everything has not yet been revealed. And just like there's joy that comes to my kids' hearts as I express confidence in their ability to do something before they've, that's yet, they have been proven. So, hey, I know you can win that game. I know you can pass that test. My kids this spring decided, a couple of them, the younger ones, decided to try out for you know, elementary basketball, which if you've ever seen that, um, it's, it's tough to watch. It's like a full game and the score is nine to eight, you know, and half or three throws. Uh, like, they just never make baskets, and it's just kind of funny, and so we had faith, you know, you're going to score a basket, come on, we believe you, and of course, sure enough, last game of the season, like, they both were able to get one in. It was remarkable and the explosion of joy that came from us as parents and from them to say all season we waited for this and here it is we had faith in that and the joy that came when that was revealed 
So God wants his people to experience a certain kind of faith in him. And this requires then that he be visibly hidden for a period of time until he's fully revealed. And then that faith can be joyfully consummated. So God wants his people to have a greater faith. That's the first reason why God is visibly unseen. Now let me share with you a second. We all know that one of the consequences of God being unseen is that many people disbelieve in him. Many people deny God's existence because they cannot visibly see him. And the results of this is that we have a world populated by two types of people, those who believe in God and those who do not. And God must have a purpose for allowing for this contrast. And if God didn't want this contrast to exist, he would obviously be visibly seen up in the sky. Everybody would just believe in his existence, just like everybody believes that the grass is green. But by being hidden, humanity then is divided into those who believe and those who do not. And God visibly hides himself, perhaps in part, to make disbelieving in God somewhat rationally understandable. People can say, well, I don't believe in God because I don't see him. And then they come up with alternative theories to explain reality and things like naturalistic evolution. When people disbelieve in God, they still need to answer some basic questions like, why is the universe here? Where did life come from? What happens when I die? And by being visually unseen, God has created a world now where naturalistic theories of origins and evolution are convincing to some people. Such theories are even made more convincing because of the nature of the earth that God has made. Some, many unbelieving scientists believe that the earth is millions and millions of years old. And this belief allows them then to craft and present alternative theories of origins like evolutionary theory. Now, based on the teaching of God's word, we here clearly teach that man did not gradually evolve from apes, that life did not independently gradually evolve apart from any sort of divine influence. But Christians vehemently debate even things like the age of the earth. Some think that it's millions and millions of years old. Others think it's very young, perhaps only several thousand years old, and, and just has the appearance of age, either created that way or made that way through cataclysmic events like a flood. And I'm not going to dig into the sticky matter, okay? I'll leave that to our senior pastor. That's the privilege of being an associate pastor. But most everybody agrees that just looking at the earth, it seems like it's been here for some time. And many people, especially in the secular scientific community, think that the earth is very, very, very old. Perhaps it truly is. Perhaps it was made to appear that way or something happened that made it appear that way. In either case, the appearance of the earth allows God to remain hidden. See, if we could prove that the earth was only 8,000 years old, there, that would be an almost undeniable proof in the existence of God. Because how else could you explain that we got here in the first place? Naturalistic evolution requires millions and millions of years to work, but if the earth was proven to only be 8,000 years old, all secular explanations of life are destroyed, and it becomes no longer rationally possible to believe that God doesn't exist, and then he's outed and is no longer hidden. So God hides himself by creating a world where it makes sense, at least to some, to disbelieve in him. And this enables, then, the world to have this great contrast of those who believe and those who do not. And why would God do this? It's not just so that those who believe have a certain type of faith. I think there's another reason. There's another reason why, a second reason why God is presently unseen, and that is this. God is showing how terrible life is without him. He's demonstrating how terrible life is without him. When a large 
portion of the world disbelieves in God because they cannot see him, the world then drifts away from God. People go off and live life on their own. And this is the general condition of the world today, and I think we can all agree it's not going well. The world is full of pain and suffering. Sin runs rampant as people harm each other and injure each other, cause pain towards one another. And this is what happens in a godless reality. Sin takes over because that's our basic nature. When sin takes over, pain and suffering results. Consider how Paul describes this reality here in Romans chapter 1. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge him, God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So this passage here describes the incredible pain that comes when God's people deny, when people deny God and fail to acknowledge him. Because they did not see fit to acknowledge God because they denied the Lord God and said, God said to them, okay, you're not going to acknowledge me? Then go ahead and feel the consequences of a wicked life apart from me. And the text goes on to describe then all sorts of suffering that comes to people as they engage in sin. They experience murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They do evil. They suffer for it. They injure each other through gossip, through slander, foolishness, ruthless actions. Why did this happen? Because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And so God is visibly unseen. And people deny him. And then they face the consequence of sin and despair of a life that is lived without God. And as that happens, it shows that we need a Savior. God is visibly unseen so that we can see how terrible life is without Him. So that ultimately we turn to Him and we say, rescue us, we need you, Take, help us here in this world that denies you. God permits this contrast to exist in this world for a time so that people realize their need for God and that they they then turn willingly to Him. And in all of this, then it greatly glorifies God. Now, I know this is complex, and I'm kind of working through a lot, so let me step back and illustrate it in this way. Consider here this story. There once was a father who had four beautiful children. Due to unusual circumstances no one expected, this father found himself raising his four children on his own. He was a kind and generous man who deeply loved his children, and all who knew him saw the obvious affection that he had for his kids. Yet he was a firm parent. He taught his children well. He expected obedience, and they were wonderfully behaved, in large part because of the tremendous respect they had for their dad. He was also a man of great wealth. Through his abundant means, he provided a luxurious lifestyle for his children. They lived in a large, modern estate far off in the countryside. Acres and acres of land were at their disposal for riding horses or playing in the woods. The father provided for their every need. They were abundantly well-fed. They had private tutors to help them learn. He often took them on lavish vacations to see the grandeur of the world. He was a doting father who began every day cooking a special breakfast for his family. 
and ended every day by tucking his children into bed one by one. As they entered their teenage years, you would think they would have resisted this ritual, but the children cherished their father, and they always delighted to be in his care. Yet one day, the father decided that his children needed some important perspective. You see, they had never been in want. They had quite unwittingly come to take for granted all of the father's care over them. So one night, after the children were all tucked into bed and fast asleep, the father snuck quietly up into the attic. There he remained, waiting to see what would happen. As the sun rose, the children stirred and rustled in their beds. As they awoke, they immediately knew something was awry. The usual smells of coffee, along with bacon and eggs or pancakes, was nowhere to be found. Nor were the sounds of their father whistling in the kitchen as he prepared their morning meal. The house was eerily silent. It seemed dead. They cautiously tiptoed downstairs together. They looked around, wondering where their father had gone. They searched high and low, looking in every room for their dad. But of course, it never occurred to them to look in the attic. After an exhaustive search, the older two decided to take things into their own hands. They attempted to cook the usual breakfast, but it was a disaster. For a moment, they were dismayed. They missed the blessings that their father had provided them. But then it dawned on them. They were in the home, alone. They could do whatever they wanted. Almost immediately, their apprehension wore off, and the house turned into a party. They made great messes. They watched whatever they wanted, played whatever games they wanted. They ate junk food all day, laughing, having the time of their lives. All the while, the father waited patiently in the attic. But soon, the fun began to wear off. Without their father's firm guidance, the children began to bicker and fight. They started to yell and scream. They treated one another with unkindness and deceit. At moments, they got along just fine, but at other times, they were at each other's throats. And as dinner drew near, they all secretly tired of ice cream and chocolate. They wanted something more, but they lacked the wisdom to cook for themselves. Hearing their complaints from the attic, the father turned on his phone and quietly ordered pizza delivery, all with his kids' favorite toppings. When the pizza arrived, the delivery person explained it was paid for by an anonymous donor. And the children wondered for a moment who that could be, but in their hunger, they quickly devoured the pizza without a second thought. They did whatever seemed fun to them deep into the night, experiencing great frivolity intermeshed with conflict and strife. But as their eyelids grew heavy, genuine tears of sadness emerged. They were exhausted, and they had no one to tuck them in. Eventually, they collapsed into their beds without even thinking to brush their teeth. When they were all fast asleep, the father snuck down from the attic. He tidied up some things that he knew they would never notice, restocked the refrigerator with fresh milk, and he quietly snuck into each of their rooms and kissed them all on the forehead goodnight. And then he returned to his hidden spot in the attic. The next morning, the children arose, and the father was again nowhere to be found. But the joy and wonder of the previous day had worn off. Now they were fearful of another day trying to fend for themselves. They knew there would be much fighting and pain as they lacked the father's wise temperance to keep their behavior in line. At night, the pizza once again came, and again they put themselves into bed. This time, a deep sense of sadness and despair washed over them. Where was their father? For three more days, this cycle repeated. 
The home became a miserable place to live. It was a complete disaster. The house was a wreck. No one got along. They all tired of pizza and cereal. And the freedom they once enjoyed had become a heavy weight. Eventually, the father had endured enough. In the midday hour, while the children sat like zombies in front of the TV, he snuck down from the attic and came up quietly behind them. Here I am he said tenderly. The children turned around. Their faces initially displayed shock and fear, but then almost as quickly turned to shouts of joy and admiration. In an instant, they rose to their feet and rushed to their father. They wrapped themselves around him, and he embraced them all in his large, strong arms. Tears of joy combined with a myriad of questions filled the air. And when the initial shock had settled down, finally the father could answer the most pressing question. Where did you go? Nowhere. Father replied, I was right here with you the entire time, only unseen in the attic. Tell me, where did you think I had gone? We had no idea. You vanished without a trace, the children answered. Really, the father said, did you not notice that the house was tidied up every night as you slept? Or how the fridge was restocked with fresh milk each morning. Or that the pizza miraculously appeared each night, every time with your favorite toppings. I never left you. But I wanted you to learn how much having a father means to you. And I wanted you to see how very much you need my care. And now that I have appeared, I know that you will never forget this lesson. For the rest of our lives, you will always remember these few days that I was hiding in the attic. And that memory of my absence will cause you to appreciate my abundant, bless abundant blessings all the more. End of story. Now, did you get the point? There is a difficult painful season of redemptive history that we're in right now. God is visually unseen. He is metaphorically, in a sense, hiding in the attic for a time to demonstrate how terrible this world can get without him and how that world so much needs a Savior. And he is hidden for a time so that people understand then what life is like without God and they cry out to him for help and he reaches down and draws near to them and saves them and he receives great glory as all, as that, all of that happens as people have this great faith in him, even though he's unseen. But be encouraged. The time of God being unseen, it is only temporary. And imagine the incredible outpouring of praise in the future when God does reveal himself visually, visually and undeniably to all. Imagine the worship that will ensue from God's people. It will be many, many, many times greater than any celebration because of some cherished sports team winning the World Series or that promotion or that uh, child that was born to you. All of God's people, when God is fully revealed, will declare, finally, the thing we have hoped for, the thing we have believed in, it is finally here, it is finally seen for all. And imagine the glory that God will receive in that moment. And finally, although this present season is difficult, that we must endure, it is equipping us, truly, for an eternity of worship. One thing that will fuel us for eternity will be memories of this, fuel our worship for eternity, will be memories of this fallen and broken world, so that when we see God visibly in the new heavens and the new earth, we will remember how bad things were here 
when God was not visibly seen. And we will remember what life was like in a godless world that chased after sin. And we'll remember how terrible it was to live in a world that did not see God. And that will help us then see more clearly how beautiful and how wonderful life is with him. We won't take it for granted and all the bitterness of this life will help us to appreciate the glories of the next life all the more. And that understanding will fuel our worship for eternity. So two specific reasons why God is presently visibly unseen. He wants his people to have a greater faith, and he is showing how terrible life is without him, all of which is purposed to bring great glory and honor to himself. Now in this, I've been careful to say that God himself is presently unseen. Because although God himself is not visibly seen by everybody in the world, the fingerprints of God are everywhere. Everywhere you look, there are impressions and signs of God. And although he himself is visibly hidden, manifestations of his glory in person are on display all throughout creation. There are visible glories of the unseen God all around us. And so we do not, while we do not see God directly, we have ample ways to see him indirectly. Or another way to say it is this, although God is not visibly seen, his glory is easily seen by those who have faith to see it. It is easily seen by those who have faith to see it. Billy Graham once famously said, I've never seen the wind. I've seen the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. And although we don't see God visibly himself yet, we see his working everywhere that we look. And God has given us incredible revelation of himself, all of which should make it abundantly clear that God exists and that we can believe and trust in him. So let me share with you three ways in which God has shown himself to man- mankind, three ways in which God has visibly revealed himself and his glory. The first is in the pages of Scripture. God has revealed himself through the specific revelation of the Bible. God talks at length in this book about who he is. It affirms his existence on each and every page. And God has spoken through this book. And as you read it and study it, you realize how remarkable this book really is, that it it must be of divine origin. It just simply has too much unity and clarity and richness and depth to have been authored by men. And these pages contain the accounts of Christ himself. It was the most clear and full and visible representation of God to date. So just read the Gospels and the life of Christ, and you see God fully on display in the pages of this book. The glories of God are clearly seen in the pages of Scripture. God's glories are also very clearly seen in the wonder of creation. The wonder of creation. Consider Psalm 19.1 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And so even though God is presently not visibly seen, creation itself is declaring that God is real and that He exists. Just look carefully out over our world, and you must conclude that God truly does exist. The analogy is often given of a watch. Imagine if you were out for a walk one day, and you looked down a path and on a path, and you saw a watch. Now, you would naturally reason that that watch was created by somebody. This would be especially true if you picked it up and you examined all the intricate parts and the gears that form it. You wouldn't just think that it kind of popped out of nowhere. You you wouldn't think that it just somehow spontaneously, naturally formed on its own. 
Now, you would reason that that watch was itself. It testifies that somewhere there is a watch creator. And uh, even though you don't see the creator, you know that he exists. Because there's no other way to explain the existence of the watch. And as you study the watch, you reason this creator has great intelligence and skill. He must have acted very intentionally to put this watch together. All the tiny little gears and sprockets and whatever that's in there. It was carefully and intelligently designed. There's no other way to explain the existence of the watch. And friends, when you examine the created world, from the intricacies of the human body to the incredible balance of and symmetry of nature itself to the amazing precision with which the, the, math, the microscopic world functions, the greatness and the vastness of the universe itself, creation testifies. It screams that there is a designer and a creator to it all. So let me illustrate this way. Look at this image up here. It's a watch. Now, as you look at that watch, I've just described one, and you look at that, does that seem created or accidental to you? Does that seem like something somebody intentionally, creatively made, or does it just seem like it's an accident? Well, it's clearly it's created, right? That's the conclusion we all, all would reach, I think. Or what about this image? Nice-looking car. Does that seem created or accidental? I think it was created. Or how about this image? The Eiffel Tower in Paris. I think everybody who sees that says, wow, what a feat of engineering. What an amazing thing that a bunch of smart people made. It's clearly created, not accidental. Here's another example. The International Space Station. Now, that just kind of come together on its own through orbital debris? No, it was clearly intentionally created and designed. Or another one. This is the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. And you look at that and you say, well, that, was that created? Or did it just kind of accidentally happen? It's created. And you're using a certain set of logic to come to that conclusion. Now, take that same way of thinking and apply that, those same logical steps you're taking and conclusions and look at this. Now, what about this? A flower. Created or accidental? Apply the same logic you used to the previous things and think about this. Does it appear at surface glance to be something that was created or something that just kind of accidentally happened? Or what about this? It's a painting. Somebody made that, an artist. We reason, all oh, that was clearly created. Well, how is that different from this? It's the surface of Jupiter. Is that created or accidental? Or what about this? Fiber optics. We know that those were made, that those were created. How is that different from this? It's a close-up of a feather. Or what about this? Here's a, some electronics, a microprocessor. We look at that and we say, well, somebody made that. That was created. Well, how is that different from this? The intricacy of a snowflake. Or how about this? There's tons of houses, rows of houses here that were obviously clearly made. How is that different from this? That's a close-up of broccoli. Here's another example. That's a fractal. It's a mathematical equation plugged in a computer that produces this image. How is that different from this? human iris. Maybe a final one, what we have here next is just a clumsy robot that mankind's created. Now, how is that different from this? That's my daughter at one. Now, if you apply the same 
logic, the same principles to all these images and all these things, they should lead you to the same conclusion to each. All were carefully designed and intentionally made by a creator. And if all of mankind, everything that we can do with our very best efforts, at best we can create just a clumsy robot, imagine how much greater the creator of this universe must be, must be to create a human body like yours or like mine with all of its intricacies and immense complexities, staggering, staggering capabilities and complexities that demonstrates incredible power, immense creativity. And I think you truly need to look at scenes like this. Here's a mountain range. Or seen like this, or another one, Western United States, or this, the vastness of the sky and the universe, or this, just the beauty of a sunset, to conclude that there is a creator behind it all. The heavens declare the glory of God, indeed they do. And all of creation testifies to his existence, from the depths of the Grand Canyon to the fragility of a snowflake. The immense diversity of life here on earth, the vast and the incredible complexity of the human body, the basic structure of DNA to the beauty of music and of color and of a sunset. Creation screams truth about God, even though we can't presently see him visually. So don't buy into theories that supposedly explain the existence of life without God. Don't allow scientific theories that are sometimes dishonest or biased in their evaluation of evidence to sow seeds of doubt into your soul. Just use common sense and say, well, what seems more reasonable, that the watch just kind of popped into existence on its own or that an intelligent and very powerful creator made it? What has a greater body of evidence to support its claims. The creation and all of its diversity and complexity and beauty happened accidentally or that it is all the handiwork of a wise and powerful, immensely creative and incredibly intelligent creator. A creator who, for some good reasons, happens to be visually unseen at this time. And so the glories of God are on clear display through the pages of Scripture, through the wonders of creation, and both of these provide incredible manifestations of His glory. But there is one final category that can be most compelling, and that is this, the testimony of changed lives. God is on display not just in the pages of Scripture and in creation, but in the life of everybody who believes in Him. God's active work in the world is not presently seen through pillars of fire or parting of the Red Sea or voices from heaven or visible appearances in the sky. His active work of creation is clearly seen right here, right here in the human heart. His lives are touched and changed by his impact. People find hope amid suffering in this life as God blesses his people with the comfort and joy that the Holy Spirit provides. As God helps his people grow and mature to become more like Jesus. And so do you want to see evidence of God? Look at the glorious work that he's doing in people's lives. And you will often see things that defy explanation. And they point clearly to the working of an unseen God. So although God is presently visually unseen, he provides ample displays of his glory for all to see in the pages of scripture and the wonders of creation and in the testimony of changed lives. These are the visible glories of the unseen God. Of course, someday God will no longer be hidden. There will be a time when he will be fully revealed. 
And then at that time, there will be no longer doubters of his existence. And all people will see Jesus Christ with absolute clarity as he's pictured here in this passage in Revelation chapter 1 that says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of mighty waters many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So someday we will see Jesus like that. Unparalleled clarity, absolute glory. And in the meantime, we wait patiently with a faith that confidently believes in things that are not yet seen. And a heart that yearns, that longs for that day to come quickly. When we all might relish in the joy that happens from seeing God visually in all of his glory. And in that, that he would be forever praised upon the full revelation of his incredible splendor for all time. That's the challenge of this life now to persevere through it with faith, confidence, as we wait for that great glory of God to be seen eventually and perhaps soon 